Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Roaring recovery, U.S. stimulus and vaccine delivery lift the IMF's global growth outlook. Hedge fund hit Credit Suisse says the Archigos cap collapse will cost $4.7 billion. And Japan's jam lockdown restrictions tighten just four months from the Olympics. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Great to be with you and to deliver good news on growth from the IMF. As I mentioned, raising their 2021 global growth forecast to 6%, buoyed by a robust U.S. recovery where reflation intoxication has taken hold. And a third of adults have had at least one vaccine dose to date. The U.S. actually is vaccinating at five times the rate of the rest of the world. But that's also the sobering part of the news today. The World Bank warning that Africa alone needs $12 billion in aid to help supply and distribute vaccines, never mind other nations across the developing world. Just to be clear, India reported more than 100,000 new COVID cases in a single day yesterday. It's a reminder that no one is truly safe until we are all safe. All right, let's take a look at the markets. A softer tone to U.S. stocks pre-market today. Consolidation after record closes for the Dow and for the S&P 500. Both economic reopening stocks and rate-sensitive tech stocks did well as bond yields held steady. That was in the session yesterday. Green in Europe today, too, as stocks trade after the Easter break. U.S. Stocks leading the pack, boosted by details of lockdown easing. That information from yesterday's trading session to Credit Suisse shares higher after announcing a high-level shakeup following the hedge fund debacle that Archigos I mentioned earlier. Details next. But as Mohammed Al-Arian told us yesterday, loose monetary policy encourages excessive risk-taking, and we could see more accidents like this in the future. China, I think, also recognizing the risks, apparently looking at ways to limit credit growth, leading to some softness in Asia shares in today's session too. The dichotomy, of course, of essential support for the consumer-driven economy, fueling risks in the financial economy, and that will continue. Let's get to the drivers. As I mentioned, the IMF raising its 2021 growth forecast significantly during its annual spring meetings today. The U.S. projected to be the main driver of growth, even as many economies risk being left behind. Claire Sebastian joins me now. The strongest place of growth, and great to have you with us, Claire, since 1984, I believe, in the United States. And there will be beneficial spillover effects. Just talk us through the headlines of this growth upgrade. Yeah, Julia, a big upgrade for the U.S. Uh, they're now projected to grow 6.4% this year. That's versus a projection from the IMF in January of 5.1%. So a significant difference in just a couple of months. Now, why is that? Well, you mentioned it. Stimulus is a big thing. Not only the stimulus that they've already passed, but looking forward to Biden's almost $2 trillion infrastructure plan, plan the IMF says, 
that will have positive spillover effects for trading partners. So this isn't just a stimulus for the US, it could impact the rest of the world as well. And of course, most importantly of all, the vaccine rollout. The, the race between the virus and the vaccine, as the IMF puts it, is now tilting a little bit, at least in developing economies, developed economies, towards the vaccine. So they do say a way out of this crisis is increasingly visible after that historic contraction last year, Julia, of down 3.3% for the world uh, in output. But there are serious risks that remain. This is a multi-speed recovery, uh, as the IMF puts it, unlike the financial crisis in 2008, which really hit advanced economies the most. This is hitting the most vulnerable emerging markets, developing economies, and within those, the most vulnerable groups, women, young people, people with low skilled, low income jobs are bearing the brunt of this. So they say there's more policy action that's needed. This is not a time to rest on your laurels. And they're calling on countries in particular uh, to, to, to look at the vaccine distribution and how they can be more equitable with that, because that is, of course, the key to this recovery. And I mentioned that as well, the $12 billion for Africa. But of course, developing nations are far broader than that. And if the developed economies don't come together and provide more support and ensure that vaccines are distributed more equitably before 2022, 2023, as was mentioned in the report today, then it's the developed nations that are also going to suffer because global growth will be restrained. And already, if you compare 2020 to 2021 and 2022, growth falls off again next year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that, that everyone has to care about. This, of course, this, this virus that we've all been battling, as you said, no one is safe uh, until everyone is safe. The, the phrase the IMF continues to use is, is scarring. Uh, mm. The US is expected, to, it's going to be the only economy, they say, to, to surpass the level of GDP it was expected to have in 2022, even without the pandemic. I think that's that's very striking. Uh, other developing economies are expected to reach that level in, in just a couple of years uh, on from that. But for developing economies, it could take, take much longer. They've been bearing the brunt in terms of days out of education, in terms of business bankruptcies, all these things that lead to this, this sort of medium and long-term scarring that could really impact them going forward. So I think that is why that is that is sort of the tone of these spring meetings from the IMF this week, a call to arms to try and make this a more equitable recovery. Yeah, limit the scarring. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, onwards. Credit Suisse is counting the cost following the collapse of the U.S. hedge fund Arkegos Capital. It's a hit of nearly $4.7 billion and now heads are rolling at the bank too. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, great to be with you. It's a nightmare scenario. They're having to suspend their buyback program. They've cut the dividend by two thirds and a whopping great write down as well. Yeah, this has been pretty costly, hasn't it? And it's pretty much wiped out all profit for the first quarter for Credit Suisse, despite a fairly good performance from other divisions. Now, this hedge fund, Archegos, had built up huge positions in certain stocks, including uh, Viacom, CBS and Discovery. Now, it hoped, of course, that the share price would go up in some of these investments. It went down. It was unable to pay back many of its lenders. And one of the biggest ones was, of course, Credit Suisse. Now, as you mentioned, we've had two very high profile exits announced today. Laura Warner, who is the chief risk and compliance officer. Brian Chin, who's the head of the investment bank, both set to leave. No bonuses for anyone on the board for the financial year just ended. There's a reputational damage. And speaking to analysts today, there's, of course, the cost that the investor is going to have to pay as well no share buybacks that has been suspended and the dividend cut by two thirds. Julia? And it doesn't surprise me that 
people lost their jobs in this debacle. I mean, this is bad enough, but you have to ask where the risk management here was when it follows a whole host of issues. I mean, they were caught up in the frauds, the alleged frauds, Wirecard, of course, the German payments company, Lucking Coffee in China. And then there were some other um, potential losses to clients coming as well via investments in Greensill Capital, which was also a huge fail. Anna, what was going on there? Did they tackle that today? <laughs> Well, when you listen like that, Julia, it's pretty shocking, isn't it? And you can see all of this reflected in the share price down over 10% this year to date. We can bring you all of those uh, very costly and perhaps mistaken investments. As you said, Luckin Coffee, that was around this time last year. And this was Credit Suisse actually underwrote the IPO for them. It was a big accounting scandal. Uh, A little further on, a month later, you and I were talking about this last year. The big Wirecard scandal get embroiled in that. York Capital write down that was more recent, $450 million and Greensill Capital, which Julia is still raging on. They don't know how much that will cost them, the collapse of that um, of that sort of supply chain finance firm. It could be in the billions of pounds. So yes, two very high profile exits today. Yes, they've taken on some costs from the collapse of Archegos. But honestly, I think that could be the tip of the iceberg, particularly for risk management at Credit Suisse. Yeah, Titanic feeling about this. Anna Stewart. Thank you so much for that. (laughs) All right, to Japan now. Three prefectures are tightening COVID-19 restrictions as new cases spike. Osaka alone reporting a single-day record of 719 infections today, less than four months before the Olympic Games are due to start. Will Ripley joins us now. Will, Osaka important because they were expected to hold the uh, torch relay, I believe, on April 14th. How are they handling that and how long are these broader restrictions set to last? Do we know? Well, it's going to depend on the case numbers, Julia. And remember, these targeted lockdowns are still basically suggestions by the government, although there are some changes that are now being put into place that will allow local governments to enforce these measures a bit more to have businesses close earlier, for example, or limit their capacity. But it has been a challenge for Japan. I was there this time last year when the numbers were starting to tick up and a lot of people were still out crowding the subways, going to work. And in terms of the Olympics, when you have 108 days until you're preparing to welcome athletes, thousands of them from 200 plus countries, uh, and you have a variant in Japan that is now believed to be more contagious and potentially resistant to vaccines, there are epidemiologists who are warning Julia that the July 23rd Olympics that go through until August 8th could be a super spreader event when you put all those things together. Some Olympic qualifiers are being canceled. Uh, They've had to uh, make adjustments to the torch relay. This is certainly not the kind of direction that the Japanese government wants to be going in uh, with this little time before this event, which has already been postponed by a year. And many nations clearly around the world looking at this and saying, is it safe to send our Olympic athletes in there? I'm sure the athletes themselves are, are questioning this too. North Korea, the first to say, we're not coming. Yes, they were the first to shut down their borders at the beginning of COVID-19, and now they're the first to say that they're not going to Tokyo. It's interesting. I mean, North Korea has not missed a Summer Olympics since they boycotted the 1988 Seoul Games, and uh, it was the 1984 Games in Los Angeles. They also boycotted. But ever since North Korea started participating, the Summer Olympics have been one of their strong suits. They have 16 gold medals, usually in like weightlifting and gymnastics. 
boxing and judo, and they take a lot of pride. I've seen the North Korean Olympians training, and they train hard. They devote themselves to this because they want to come back and give their leader, Kim Jong-un, a victory. So this decision not to go, probably not taken lightly by the North Korean government, but look, they're prioritizing the safety of the people who live in North Korea over pretty much everything else. Their economy has taken a hit because they've shut down their borders, but they know that they have a dilapidated healthcare system that could not handle an outbreak inside the country. Now, this is a huge setback for South Korea's president, Moon Jae-in. The Olympics do offer that rare opportunity for some face-to-face conversations, some sports mm-hmm. diplomacy, and that's not going to happen, and that has to be a huge disappointment for him, given that you know his term will be coming to an end. They're holding elections in South Korea in 2022. Of course. Safety, though, above all. Will Ripley, thank you so much for that. Yeah. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The Kremlin says jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny will not receive any, quote, special treatment. Navalny is vowing to keep up a hunger strike aimed at forcing prison authorities to give him proper medical care. He says he's now suffering from a high temperature and a bad cough, as well as severe back and leg pain. An Iranian government spokesman says Tehran is neither optimistic nor pessimistic about nuclear talks underway in Vienna. It comes three years after former U.S. President Trump abandoned the deal. Five other countries, all part of the original accord, will meet with Iran. The U.S. and Iran will not speak directly. The trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin will continue this hour. In Monday's testimony, the Minneapolis police chief testified against his own former officer, saying Chauvin quote, absolutely violated policy when he knelt on the neck of George Floyd last year. CNN's Josh Campbell has more. Once Mr. Floyd had stopped resisting, and certainly once he was um, in distress and trying to verbalize that, um, that, that should have stopped. Minneapolis Police Chief Madaria Arredondo testified Monday that he believed former officer Derek Chauvin did use excessive force when arresting George Floyd last May. What is uh, the officer supposed to do to a person in crisis? Uh, it's an attempt to de-escalate that, that situation. Arredondo, who fired Chauvin and the three other officers involved the day after Floyd's death, says that Chauvin violated the department's neck restraint policy and that Floyd's alleged crime did not require that amount of force. To continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, uh, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. The police chief agreed during cross-examination by Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, that force is sometimes necessary to de-escalate a situation, and handcuffed suspects can inflict harm. Nelson quoted the reasonable use of force standard defined in a 1989 Supreme Court decision. Police officers are often forced to make split-second judgments in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving about the amount of force that is necessary in a particular situation, right? Yes. MPD Inspector Katie Blackwell was in charge of police training last May and testified Chauvin was taught defensive tactics and proper use of force. Her response to seeing Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck? I don't know what kind of improvised position that is. So that's not what we train. 
The emergency room doctor who treated Floyd, Dr. Bradford Langenfeld, testified that he believed Floyd's cardiac arrest was likely due to a lack of oxygen or hypoxia. Any amount of time that a patient spends in cardiac arrest without immediate CPR um, markedly decreases the chance of a good outcome. Langenfeld tried to revive Floyd for about 30 minutes before pronouncing him dead. The prosecution argues that the hypoxia was a result of Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes. The defense argues it was caused by Floyd's drug use. Certain drugs can cause hypoxia, agreed? Yes. Specifically fentanyl? That's correct. How about methamphetamine? It can. Combination of the two? Yes. In response, the prosecution dismissed the defense's claims. Did they say to you for purposes of caring or giving treatment to Mr. Floyd that they felt he had uh, suffered a drug overdose? Not in the information they gave, no. All right, still to come here on First Move, chip crunch as the global shortage hits car makers, phones, microwave producers and more. We speak to the CEO of the biggest U.S. foundry. And vaccine verification, IBM working with New York, Singapore and Germany on blockchain-based health certificates. We explore the technology next. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. majors are taking a bit of a breather after Monday's robust rally, driven in part by news that activity in the U.S. services sector is finally on the rebound too. Reopening stocks like airlines and cruise lines all rallied yesterday and are up once again pre-market. Norwegian cruises caught my eye this morning. They're now asking the U.S. to allow them to sail again by July 4th, saying it will require vaccinations for all passengers and crew. It says it will sail at only 60% capacity at the start if it gets the green light. So watch this space. In the meantime, Taiwan's TSMC and Samsung Electronics are the world's biggest semiconductor foundries. The third biggest is U.S.-based and its global foundries. The private company has factories in Singapore, the United States and Germany, and counts Qualcomm and Broadcom among its many customers. It's also the only manufacturer of the U.S. military's most sensitive chips. Joining us now is Thomas Caulfield. He's the CEO of Global Foundries. Thomas, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for making time because I know you and your team are incredibly busy at this moment. Just explain to well, our audience, you, please. <laughs> Welcome. Just explain to our audience precisely what chips and for what kind of technology you and your team manufacture. Well, we make a broad range of chips for you know, almost every market segment from data centers to Internet of Things to almost any electronic device. In fact, if you looked around your studio, maybe if the audience looked around their home and looked at almost every electronic device in their house, there's a high probability there's a Global Foundries chip that we manufacture for one of our 250 uh, customers around the world. So I think a lot of uh, people watching this and certainly myself are aware of the chip shortage that we keep hearing about. And we've seen a number of the big automakers warning about production. But I'm not sure if people actually understand where the shortage is coming from and, and perhaps how easily that can be addressed simply by ramping up investment. Can you just explain where actually the shortage is coming from and, and how we tackle it? Yeah, that's it's a great question. If you think about two inflection points that really happened in our industry, the first about 15 years ago, with the advent of the smartphone, 
you know, we were an industry that was compute centric. It was about PCs, laptops, data centers. And the, the smartphone brought feature rich uh, capability and work uh, use cases to the industry. Think about your, your, your smartphone today. It has a camera. It has secure pay transaction features. It has audio chips. It has uh, power management chips for battery life. It has chips that allow touch display. And once that uh, use case of about a 1.3 to 1.5 billion handsets a year exploded, the, the industry shifted from semiconductor being so focused on compute centric to pervasive deployment of semiconductors. And that led to every device wanted touch screens and features. And so this demand or, has been growing uh, at a very brisk rate. Then we come across 2020 and the unfortunate pandemic. Yeah. And for me, it, it felt like a decade and a year that technology was adopted one year that would have taken a decade. And this intersection of the, the change of pervasive semiconductor deployment accelerated by the COVID uh, situation has created this unprecedented demand. And it's structural, it's not just a blip. And what happens now is that all semiconductor manufacturers, and there are not many of us left in the world, have to accelerate creating capacity for our, our customers. And this is not an easy, an easy thing to do. By the time you decide you want to add capacity to the time you can actually create new products for your customer, it's about a year to order equipment, install equipment, qualify the equipment, and actually produce a quality product on that equipment. So how long is the shortage going to be here for if you're talking about 12 months between simply making the announcement that you're going to invest and increase capex in order to produce greater manufacturing capabilities to the point where you actually can achieve it? We're looking at more than a year. I, I think it's, it's, well, it'll last well into 2022. Wow. It'll get into, into balance and then it'll grow at a normal rate demand and supply will, will, will be much more uh, you know, closely together. But I think to get, to get caught up, it's at least a, a year to a year and a half from now. How much does it cost to build a foundry? I've seen some estimates that say somewhere between 10 and $15 billion. I mean, I'm sure it depends on where you are in yeah. the world, but just as a gauge. No, I think this is an industry. Most industries talk in you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. Capacity in our industry always starts with a B. And if it's adding <laughs> capacity to an existing facility, it's a couple of Bs, right? If it's putting a shovel in the ground and starting with a, you know, a new capacity, it starts probably with $5 billion and higher. So this is, a, this is very complex technology, very difficult technology to, to master. It takes companies decades to get good at this. And uh, the, the capital and deployment to create globally competitive scale uh, is, is, is large numbers like we just spoke about. Yeah, I mean, I know, and you've been pushing the administration, the U.S. administration to say, look, we have to invest in this. It can't just be about the private sector. The public sector has to step up. But just, you know, we've talked about this on the show recently, uh, Taiwanese Semiconductor investing $100 billion over the next three years. We know China's ramping up capacity. Just putting the U.S. government's proposed plan for $50 billion into perspective here, Thomas, even if we add in the private sector investment like Intel, for example, um, is it enough? Is $50 billion from the government enough? Well, first, let's talk about the problem that's trying to be solved. U.S. headquartered companies participate in roughly 50% of the market opportunity of the semi-industry, which is roughly a half a billion dollars. But only 12% of semiconductors are manufactured in the U.S. And this is the imbalance that the U.S. government's trying to fix. And so the, the fact of the matter is industrial policy that creates globally competitive manufacturing 
is what the U.S. government is trying to achieve. Let, let's give co-investments similar to what other regions of the world do to make sure that uh, the economics work for companies to make manufacturing possible in the U.S. And so I don't think this is a one, one and done. I think this is a, a policy that will be timeless and a policy that will continually adapt to, the, to being globally competitive. And look, I don't think $50 billion is something we, we, we would we'd say is, is too little at this time. I think $50 billion is a great start. Let's get that, uh, that those co-investments going. GF is, is ready to do its part and accelerate its expansion uh, in the U.S. once we can be part of that, uh, that, that opportunity. I think that was a diplomatic way of saying um, more, more is required. What are the consequences of insufficient? Is it suppression of innovation or in a very competitive field? And to your point, an acceleration of the use of technology that's not going to stop. It's only going to accelerate likely in the coming years. Um, the United States gets left behind. Well, first, you know, the United States invented the transistor in the semiconductor industry, and they have great leadership on this. I think what's at stake, and, and, and maybe it's this chip shortage that's created such a high level of awareness of how pervasive semiconductor is in the world economy. You know, it's at the heart of a $85, $91 trillion world economy. Uh, and so the, the importance of semiconductor, not only for national security reasons, but for economic reasons, is, 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 is key. And I think when you talk about technology leadership, it's not enough just to have R&D. That's where it begins. You have to learn how to manufacture it and make something out of it. And part of the whole innovation process is not just to develop new technology, but to learn how to do the innovation of bringing it to manufacturing in a way that's it's profitable. And, and, and that's why you need to have the entire uh, technology chain from design to design tools to R&D to manufacturing. That's how you, can, you have a leadership position in the technology of any sort, especially in semiconductors. You own the supply chain or at least you have full control of it. Thomas, very quickly, with regards to Global Foundry's ambitions, an IPO this year? Well, as you know, we've talked about the timetable before, and the timetable is always based on Global Foundry's achieving certain financial and you know performance targets. And we talked about an intercepting point sometimes in, in, in 2022. You know, for I know you're not going to like this answer, but for now, we are just laser-focused on <laughs> the driving manufacturing output expanding our capacity to meet our customer needs. You know, we, you know we, we have a job to do here, and it's to get this in balance closer to uh, uh, neutral. Yeah, I really like that answer. We'll let you get back to work. Thomas Caulfield, great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you so much. The CEO of Thank Global you. Foundries there. Thank you for your time. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are open this Tuesday and as expected, we're a bit softer in the early price action. As you can see, the down, the S&P, however, still very close to those all-time highs hit yesterday. The United States truly the star of the show at the IMF spring meetings today, too. The IMF officials saying America will be the main driver of global growth this year with the growth rising at its fastest pace since 1984 due to massive U.S. stimulus that will spill over and help lift all boats. Also crucial to the recovery too, vaccine passports, health credentials, call it what you will, but proof of vaccination or at least a negative test result could be crucial to getting the world back to some semblance of normality. The problem is in many countries, you're handed a squiggle on a bit of card, which is easy to copy. And the same goes for a screenshot of a test result. 
Enter IBM, saying it has a solution which can't be forged or faked. Its digital health pass utilizes blockchain technology that's a decentralized ledger as opposed to a hackable database of health information. It can live in the digital wallet on your phone. Faced with a major global problem, IBM's is just one of many competing solutions, and that arguably is a problem in itself. Here to discuss, Jason Kelly is General Manager of Blockchain at IBM. Jason, fantastic to have you with us. I know New York is actually trialling and using this technology, but just explain how it all works. And I think the clue, as I've mentioned, is uh, the component of your title, which is the fact that blockchain technology is being used here. Hey, Julia, thanks. Glad to be with you. And I think you did a fabulous job of <laughs> describing just what this health credential, as you call it, is, is you know, what it does and what it, what it does in the market. It simply is something that's created to allow consumers such as yourself to give your health status. That's what you want to be able to do, I would guess, uh, when you've received either A, a full set of the vaccines, or that you've had a negative COVID test. And with that, you can, by way of downloading an app from iOS or Android, you can have that on your phone. You go in, you get tested. And with that test result or the vaccine, you then are given a QR code that sits on your phone digitally. And it resides in the blockchain as well, as you call out the blockchain. I'll use the B word because you used the B word. <laughs> and that allows it to sit there with trust and security because it can't be changed. If it is changed, you know who has changed it. And if it tries to be used in a fraudulent way, you are aware of that as well. So it's secure. And it's also something that is very intuitive to use. It's in a couple languages, multiple languages now as we continue to take this globally. And most of all, it allows you as the consumer to maintain your privacy. So this is your data that you can hold. And the only thing you have on your phone is that encrypted QR code. I have to say we're very comfortable with the B word on this show. And I just want to go over the, the point that I mentioned about the, the decentralized nature of this, because this is crucial to the point you made about privacy and the protection of data. The beauty of what blockchain technology allows is that there doesn't have to be this central database where all the information on everybody and their health certificates, whether they've got a recent test result, their vaccine information, their date of birth, there isn't that that needs to exist in order to draw information from. And that, of course, is what would be alluring to hackers. Absolutely. That database doesn't have to be there. that centralized. In fact, it allows for you as a consumer to share what you want to share, how you want to share it. So in this case, it's a QR code. Or if you do not have a digital device, you're able to print that same QR code and use it instead. Now, the problem is, and this all works very well in practice, and obviously the state of, um, of New York is already using it, and I know you're talking to other states and, and nations around the world, but it seems like everybody's going off in different directions. I mean, I know IBM itself, part of the Vaccine Credential Initiative, a whole host of different companies looking at how we do this. How easy is it for the solution that you've come up with to be adopted by nation states, for example, or even other states in the United States? 
being able to use it in multiple states in the U.S. is something that we're definitely hoping for, as New York was the first state to roll this out. We're also using this globally in Europe and also in Asia Pacific. So this is something that's already being worked with as a global solution. And I'll call out something that you said, Julia. You said that you know there's competing apps. We thought about this well before the pandemic, as that's when this capability, this credential was created. And one of the tenets was to make sure that what we are creating and have created here is that it's open and that it's accessible by all. So that thought of competing for us is not really what we're after here. We want collaboration. We want to make sure that all of these different types of health passes can work on this one open platform so that, in fact, as you said, you're not just going to travel in one state or one city state, you're gonna travel around the world in many cases and you want to have that access and that capability. How likely is it that we end up in a situation where you can travel internationally and you can use the same kind of QR code to swipe into a movie cinema, for example, or a big event in, if I went to London versus doing something at Madison Square Gardens here in New York. How likely is it that we get to that point, Jason? Julia, I believe it's very likely. Uh, no different than we have one capability across the internet with multiple protocols. We use that same cell phone these days to go and travel where we want. And those that don't have that, you have this capability where you say, well, if I can print that QR code and it's recognized on an open platform, I can do that as well. So this thought of getting back into public life post-pandemic is a reality. And we see that as the opportunity here in an optional way, because I think everyone here, you know, everyone's not going to say, I want to use this one app. They will come up with different things that they want to use. And we want to make sure that it's open and configurable for those needs and wants. Yeah, makes perfect sense, Jason. I have a 10,000 other questions for you about what we're seeing more broadly in the crypto space and blockchain technology, but I've run out of time. So please come back soon and uh, chat to us again. Good. And, um, good luck with Thank uh, this you. mission. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thanks. Jason Kelly, General Manager of Blockchain at IBM there. Okay, I just want to uh, make you aware there's an important hearing happening in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. He's accused of killing George Floyd by kneeling on his neck last summer. Now, the friend who was in the car with Floyd at the time is appearing before the judge this morning. Maurice Hall's lawyer has just said he will invoke his constitutional right against self-incrimination and will refuse to testify. Now, the judge must decide if he will compel Hall to testify about what he experienced on that fateful day. So that going on right now, and we will bring you full coverage of the trial with testimony set to begin in the next hour. All right, coming up, motoring our way to a cleaner planet, the company that's developing cutting-edge technology backed by Iron Man. Yes, Robert Downey Jr. and the company hoping to save the planet one motor at a time. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. It's estimated that more than 40% of the electricity generated in the world is used to drive motors. And the problem with that is motors still rely on century-old technology. 
Well, California-based Tentide Technologies wants to replace those motors with its smart motors, saying they can slash carbon emissions as well as energy bills. The company is backed by Amazon, Bill Gates and Ironman actor Robert Downey Jr. And joining us now, Tentide Chairman and CEO Ryan Morris. Ryan, great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Just explain the Tentide mission and the technology behind your smart motors, please. Yeah, morning from uh, San Francisco. Thanks for having me. So early morning. Uh, as as you pointed out, about half of the electricity in the entire world, it's actually closer to fifty percent now, uh, is consumed. All the of the electricity is consumed by electric motors. You think if you've ever walked up a flight of uh, fifty stories, you know, in a skyscraper, that's the amount of energy that the water has to get, to do just to get to the tap of the faucet. You know, when you go to the restroom or something like that in a skyscraper. So there's a huge amount of energy required to really move civilization, and motors are what uh, do that turning of electricity into motion. So our mission as a company is ultimately to upgrade all of the motors in the world to what we call optimal motor systems, which means an efficient electric machine, which is a physics concept uh, that we have over 100 patents for, and then it has to be part of an intelligent system so that it's using energy purposely uh, to serve humanity as opposed to, you know, just running a motor for, for kind of no reason. And, and that whole uh, combination is what has only really recently become possible thanks to advances in computing technology. And to how much of a reduction in motor energy consumption are we talking about here, whether it's reduced heating or, or reduced cooling? So if you're looking at existing buildings, the biggest uh, footprint for your energy bill is typically uh, HVAC and yes. your air conditioning. So what we find is that we, in the real world, this is not in the lab, in the real world, we have an average of about a 64% energy reduction uh, in the main part of the HVAC system that moves the air. So that's maybe about 50% overall for the whole HVAC system. Um, so it's pretty remarkable. It's about a two year payback. So it's actually usually a faster payback than the LED lighting uh, upgrades, which there's been tens of billions of dollars of, of upgrades over the last five years or so. It's it's another one of these rare examples where it's both better for the planet and climate, and it also pays for itself very quickly. So it's just kind of a double bottom line thing. If you're in a much more advanced application, like an electric vehicle, where you're they're using you know cutting edge uh, rare earth magnet driven permanent magnet motors, you might you, you could probably still get about a five to ten percent benefit. Um, but you also avoid the whole rare earth issue in your supply chain. Um, and, you know, if you're in a, ba- in a battery driven vehicle, that saves five to 10 percent on the battery, uh, which is which is quite a significant savings. Wow. But for an HVAC motor, if you're talking about a two year payback, just give us a sense. What's the upfront cost of one of these motors? Uh, well, it depends on the size of the motor, but ballpark about two thousand dollars per unit. And then that'll save about $1,000 a year of electricity and last for 10 or 15 years. Uh, we also have a whole building management system that comes with, uh, with the motor system that's for small buildings. So 90% of the buildings uh, that are kind of under 200K square feet, larger buildings, uh, the smaller buildings really don't have building automation systems today. And that's right. an important component of this optimal system idea that we have. Yeah, so it's not just about buying the motor. It's about investing in the entire infrastructure that surrounds it as well. But Ryan, you have got these out there. People have invested. They have buildings that are using these now. Oh, yeah, yeah. We have thousands. Uh, I think today we have 6,000 motors out there running in the field. Uh, you know, it was a few hundred a year ago. And, you know, by the end of the year, we're targeting about 50,000 uh, installations. So we're kind of right at that real uh, scaling point, that inflection point. 
this is a very long journey. This technology was in development for about 14 years. I worked in wow. electric vehicle technology um, prior to this, uh, and I joined uh, Turntide to create it as it is today about four years ago. But the original R&D team spun out of university back in 2007. So this is incredibly hard physics. This is very hard tech. People have been talking about making switch reluctance uh, the dominant form or uh, main form of electric motor technology for, for decades. And it, it's really the first time this has been taken over the finish line. Yeah, switched reluctance motor SRM technology. I was Googling that last night. Um, you said something recently, and it, it sort of ties to the investment required to make sure that we start to see people doing this and saving energy and uh, reducing our carbon footprint. The venture capital world was burned and scarred by clean tech one. In the last six months, the capital markets have really woken up to the opportunities of clean tech two. What, what does this mean, Ryan? And in terms of you know, going out there and trying to raise money and boost investment in your product, what did you mean by venture capitalists being burned by one and now they're ready for two? Yeah, so the most predictable thing in human development is this exponential price performance dynamic of information technologies. It's why your, you right. know, your phone today has like a thousand <laughs> times more storage and high definition video than the one 15 years ago. So this, uh, you know, since, since fire extinguishers were invented uh, a few thousand years ago, information only increases, you know, Alexandria Library being a sort of historical uh, rare exception. But if you think of uh, what was possible, you know, 2008 when cleantech 1.0 uh, kind of happened, and there was a lot of money put after, uh, you know, biofuels and other other technologies, they they unfortunately uh, relied on a lot of government uh, subsidy, and they didn't pay for themselves, so they weren't an economic decision. It was people making a decision to you know help the planet, but it was going to cost them like twice as much money. And there's still applications where you need that. But there's really in the last several years, us, us being one of the examples, that it's now just cheaper and better. Right. So it's not it's not a trade off decision anymore. And, you know, you're sort of able to harness a lot of the the incredible power of free market capitalism to drive scaling of deployment of these technologies that was not economically feasible before because the cost hadn't come down. So for the same reason why, you know, Tesla is successful now and the GM EV1 was not successful 20 years ago with a, you know, heavy lead acid battery, it's it's really figuring out how to make technologies and then make companies actually, and this is where company culture is critical, um, how to harness these exponential tailwinds, as I call them. Uh, and company culture is, is a big deal for that as well because, you know, in, in a sense, if you think the 20th century, you know, Frederick Taylor was all about how do we treat you know the human as a as a machine? Well, now we have actual intelligent machines, so we need to treat people more <laughs> like people. <laughs> yeah, but to your point, quantifiable positive economics in tackling climate change is exactly what we need. What's needed, and to your point, this is now what at least your technology and what you're saying is being offered, and this is vital. Ryan, come back and talk to us soon, please. I'm great to have you on. Ryan Morris, Chairman and CEO of Turntide there. Thank you. All right, up next, summer holidays abroad, on or off? That's the key question for the UK airline industry and its lockdown-weary population. As the Prime Minister's reopening plans cause a little confusion. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move to the UK now, where the CEO of Heathrow and others in the airline industry are calling for clarity on the restart of international travel. The government unveiled its roadmap for reopening on Monday, but set no date for the return of foreign holidays. 
Salma Abdelaziz joins us now. Salma, great to have you with us. We were talking about this yesterday. The front pages of two of the papers, admittedly, different positions. Johnson pledges return to a semblance of normality, quote, no end in sight, as Johnson says normal is some way off. I think that says it all. Summer, can you give us any clarity on what the plans are? It's really a glass half full, glass half empty situation, depending on how you want to see it, Julia. Uh, We were expecting for a firm date, for a firm announcement from the Prime Minister as to when international travel will resume. Instead, uh, what we got was a much more cautious approach. The Prime Minister essentially saying that the authorities need to be realistic, that there are outbreaks happening in uh, neighbouring countries in Europe and that it's still too early to tell. But uh, what you're going to be hearing over and over and over again from CEOs from the airline industry is that they need clarity. They need answers now. May 17th is not that far off. I just want to read you a quote from one airline industry head here just to kind of give you a sense of of, of the feeling. While we support the establishment of a framework for restarting international travel and welcome the removal of self-isolation for arrivals from from green countries, today's announcement does not provide the clarity we were seeking on the roadway back towards normality. And you're going to hear that word over and over again. Clarity transparency. Why are they worried? Why are they concerned? You might remember last summer when travel rules were changing almost by the hour, it felt like, and you had long queues of people waiting in airports across Europe trying to figure out how to come home. That kind of chaos, it can't happen again, especially uh, when the industry is simply trying to recover from, from last year. They need that clarity. They need an answer, Julia. Yeah, the risk is it does, though, because you have to base it on the prevailing conditions at the time. That's the pandemic. Salma, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Salma Abdelaziz there. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages in the coming hours. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, we'll see you tomorrow. Stay safe and connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.